0: We've been walking through the book of First John. We're going to continue going in First John, looking at five verses here in First John. Um, and um, let's jump right in. So, story to tell you, Natalie and I had um, just finished a climb up Eagle Cliff in Colorado. It's, all, it's an almost 9,000-foot uh, mountain in Rocky Mountain National Park. And, and she felt so proud. And uh, at, at six, it was quite an accomplishment. That mountain just inside the park had a, had a number of places that were, if you've ever climbed it, they were very steep. And you had to scramble up it, and there are actually cactuses on that mountain. And we got back to the cabin, and I headed over to the Sweet Memorial Building on the Y grounds. And, and inside the Sweet Memorial Building at the Ranger little hiking station, I purchased, I purchased this, a little trail tag. Later that evening, in our cabin, we, as we were putting our kids to bed, I pulled Natalie aside, and she was sitting in a chair in a small area of our of our living room and, and, and I had this trail tag in a, in a small bag and I kneeled down next to her, and I told her just how proud I was, was what a great job that that she did listening to my instructions and staying near me as we made a, our way up the mountain. What you need to know about this mountain is that to the left of the mountain was a thousand foot drop. That's why I think it's called a cliff. <laughs> and so I told her, it's very important that you stay, you stay next to me because I could protect her. And she did exactly what I told her. And she did, she did what I told her uh, she needed to do. And so there on my knees next to that chair, cuddled up close, as close as I could get to her, I told her, I have a present for you because I'm so proud of you. And I held out the bag, and she reached in into the bag and pulled it out, and she read "Eagle Cliff," and then she burst into tears. And my immediate reaction was, "What? What did I do? <laughs> you know, is she disappointed? I I have no idea. You know, this is the child that won once when she was like two or three. I I called her inside from the playset, and I said, Natalie, come on time,' and and uh, and she just. She just had this look on her face, and she was running really fast. And I'm like, oh, look at Jesus. i so happy to come in here until she got about five feet away from me, and she was ticked off. I called her in, and she wham, walloped me on. And so I misunderstood those emotions. <laughs> it was like egging her on, you know. Uh, but I'm like, what did I do? What did I do? I, I know it isn't much. It's just a little tag, but... But um, maybe she's just really disappointed. And so I asked her, I said, Natalie, are are you okay? And through tears and a head nod and a verbal yes, I I asked her what she was feeling. And she looked at me and and she said, just before she hugged me with tears streaming down her face, she said, Daddy, I love you more than my bones. (laughs) I'd never heard that one before. (laughs) I wasn't exactly sure what it meant. (laughs) But I I, I knew it must have meant a lot. A lot. And when I crawled into bed that night, Michelle listened to this whole thing and wondered, what did I do to make her cry? And it was a relief to find out that it was just, it was her bones. Her bones were <laughs> crying out for love for her father. <laughs> and, and some people think, you know, some people think the scriptures are, are a bunch of just, just stodgy rules. A bunch of do's and don'ts. And there, there are a lot of rules, but but I think... Uh, They're they're a lot more like instructions. They show us how life is lived best. And some people think, though, they think about scriptures that it's about great men and women. That's what the scriptures are about. Uh, But men and women who have done these great things. And although in the scriptures there's story upon story of these individuals, most of them had tremendous flaws. You know, they ran away from God. They cheated others. They were murderers. They were adulterers. But all the scriptures point to God and they really tell us one big story about how he's chasing his beloved and he's calling to us and beckoning to the crowning of his creation to come back to him. And in every story, in every scripture story, there's a common thread. And if you listen closely enough, you'll hear that it it says the name of Jesus. And the world we live in, though, is not the one that we were designed to be in. This is our mess. I mean, sure, it has its shining moments, but it's also a very tear-filled place with lots of pain and sorrow and sadness. And here in this book, Grandpa John, is, he's going to lead us into this realm of spiritual forces. We're, we're going to be going there. And even today as we read, he's going he's to echo the lies that got us into this mess in the first place. The beginning of the story where we not only broke the law of God, but we also broke his heart. And the biblical narrative has a framework. It has a, it has a worldview when you get into the scriptures that accounts for the rivers of blood that we see and that we read about every single day. That the breaking of God's law, it darkened and it twisted everything, all the beauty of what this place was meant to be. But in spite of the breaking of God's law, in spite of us turning away from him, he is chasing us down. And he has a, he has a love for his kids it's out of this world. And although we run from him and we hide from him, we tell ourselves we don't need God, there's a yearning in each one of us, I believe, that shows us that we were created for glory. We were created for more than what we see, live, and experience and that we actually need him. You know, maybe it's an emptiness that you, that you feel. When everything's quiet, there's just there's an emptiness that speaks to that great need. Maybe, maybe it happened in a divorce. Maybe for you, life, though, has been pretty good. You know, you got nothing to complain about. But God remains the true source of your happiness, although he's the unacknowledged source of all that. But you and I were made to find our deep significance, our value, our longings in God. And although I was surprised by Natalie's response to me, it represents a beautiful picture of what God wants from my heart. You see, she could have climbed that mountain on her own. She could have done it. She could have said, what do, you, what do you mean proud of me? Return that tag. I got my own money. If I want to tag, I'm going to go to the Sweet Memorial and buy it myself. Instead, though, she looked to me. And she looked to me for her identity. And she rested on my words of affirmation. She responded to me with, with tears that represented, I think, a depth of gratitude and a thankfulness for her daddy. And, and I think she's beautiful. She is worth it. If that's the case, then there's nothing more precious than for her to believe it and, and let it stir up even her bones to love me. So it is God's heart for you that, that you would love him and treasure him completely. And as we come to First John again, I remind you that if you know God, if you say, if you claim, then you, then you know that kind of love that cleanses and forgives and awakens us to the tender calling of God for you to live a life of gratitude. You, you have a heart then that doesn't go to the left. You listen to your father's instructions because you've experienced his love for you. And John has been exposing the claims of those who say they love God in this book who say they have intimacy with God by describing what a real follower of Jesus looks like. Someone who loves Jesus, walks as he did. He, he lives in the light, confesses sin, loves his brother. They, they don't do this perfectly. No, but but there is a mark of intimacy in the relationship with God that is a growing tendency, that has a growing tendency that, that, that goes up. There's a maturity in their walk of growth because they've come into a relationship with the father through Christ. So if you have the scriptures, you can open them up to first John chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Okay. Verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the uh, of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Will you pray with me? Father, we just, we thank you that you do pursue us. God, that in your great love, you do chase us down. God, that you call us to be next to you, to be near you, to not wander from you, because you know that is the best place for us. I pray that we would hear your tender affection, Lord, that we would hear your exhortation to be with you, not be in the world. And God, as we define, as we look at this, Lord, I just pray that you would do the work of illuminating, of awakening, of of getting us to to put ourselves and place ourselves in that scripture, God, that you would meet us in our tremendous needs. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you did in my life 20 years ago. You took a 19-year-old and you just, you changed my life. Lord, I pray that you would do that here in this place, Lord, that the, the, the echoes of that would continue to, to go out and, and reach this campus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as you see here in the first couple of verses here, John addresses all of the people listening to his letter in a very poetic way. He calls them children and fathers and young men, and he repeats what he says for emphasis. So it's pretty safe to say that, that here he's addressing, if you want to look at studying, he's addressing two groups of people. Two groups of people. First, the, the broad group, this is actually is a group, the children in the group. He's not talking about kids. He's just talking about all the people that are listening. So the children refers to everyone. And then he talks about um, the old men, the fathers. He's really talking about an age group, people who are older they're older in age. They don't necessarily have children, but they, they're the older men and women in the community. And then he talks about the young men. He talks about the youth, the youth that are in the community. And so let's work through this parallel structure here. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name'sake." He's talking to his whole entire audience. Then he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Here, John is reminding his entire audience of the blessings of forgiveness. So he's just walked through, if you know him, if you, if you claim to know him, if you love him, then, you, then you'll do these things. And so he's always saying, listen, you know the Father, you do, you know him. You know the blessings. You know the blessings of being with the Father, and not just the dismissal of sin. He's not saying that you know God, that God just dismisses sin, because John, here he evokes Jesus' death and burial and resurrection when he says, it's for his name's sake that you know the Father. It's for Jesus. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin. And anyone who has yielded his life to Christ has forgiveness. And so Christ's death satisfies a just punishment that brings us into fellowship with Jesus through faith. Then he says of his children, I write to you because you know the father. In effect, he's just affirming that these are people that know God, that they've experienced not just things about God or had some sort of spiritual experience, but they know him. We talked about that last week in verse 3, that you you can know God. And what, what does it mean to know God? Well, it means that you walk in the light, that you keep his commandments, that you practice love for fellow believers. Those are the marks of the real deal. Those are the children. Next, he addresses the fathers, people who are a little bit, you know, older in the generation sitting in that church. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. The only difference is the, the verb tense in the, uh, to write. That's the only difference. And here John is saying again, listen, you know him. And so I just, I tell you guys, do you, you know him? I mean, if you do, then, then you know him. You know what he's like. I mean, you know Jesus. He's the one who became flesh. He dwelt among, among us. You know him. And then next, John addresses the younger individuals in the audience, which I think is you. A little bit of me, mostly you. It says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So here John addresses youth differently. Maybe it's because with youth comes passion and zeal and action and activity. Most young people think they're invincible. Don't you? Oh, it's true. A camera and YouTube is all you need to show the world that you're invincible. Here, watch this clip. (laughs) I don't think he fell. There was no music in that because it was F you and F that. So that's why I was (laughs) muted. You'll thank me later. But in general, John says, listen, I I watch that and I just go, oh. I I generally take the married with three kids route and everything I do. Um, (laughs) John says, listen, real strength, real strength doesn't come from you at all. You think you, would ha- you think you have what it takes to take on a crane hang? You think you have what it takes to take on the world? You have no idea what evil is and what it will do to you. You have no clue. But you've overcome the evil one. You have, not by yourself, but because you're strong in the word of God. here's The word of God abides in you. John is saying victory in your life, it doesn't come from your strength or what you do or how well you do it. Victory comes through faith, and it is a present reality in your life. Later in chapter 4, we'll see that, that John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You've overcome evil then when you reject falsehood. You didn't follow those people that are stealing you away from this church, away from this fellowship. You, when you reject the claims of whatever pulls you outside of this place and away from the truth of Christ. And there's a lot that will do that. John's focus here for young people is that the word of God abides in your life. It, it stays in you and it's with you and you've memorized it and you know it. The majority of this church is right here, man. This is the youth. Young men and women, are you you learning what real strength is? How real growth happens? I mean, have you had the opportunity already to look back like last year and to reflect on that and say, man, God has changed me. Like I am not the same young woman. I am not the same man that I was a year ago. If you look back a year or two, can, can you say that? That God has done so much in my life. Have you experienced life change? Remember, this stuff isn't easy. You know, growth is hard. It requires active love and it's risky. You need clinging faith and trust. And every step of growth is difficult. Spiritual maturity takes time. But have you seen that in the past year? I mean, does, does that mark your life? Has God's word grown in your heart? Does it influence you more? Has your love for Jesus grown and your confidence in Jesus Christ grown? Has your ministry service, has that increased? Has your prayer life increased? Are you killing sin? Are you relying on God? You know, Christian maturity, listen, Christian maturity is not getting everything right. It's not about where everything, you know, becomes perfect. What it is, it's walking in humble relationship with Jesus. That's what it is. That's what maturity is. And you're walking towards holiness, yes, but you are eagerly dependent on him. Loving the, the process of refinement and loving the process of change as God develops the inner person. If you can't say yes, if, you can't, if you're reflecting, you can't say yes, I've grown, I've matured. Let me ask you a question then. Where, where do you want to be 18 months from now? Where do you want to be? It's an honest question. What will it take? When the word of God imbi- abides in you, young people, you will grow. I mean, you will be an overcomer. You'll look back 18 months from now and you'll say, man, did God do a good work of change in my life? You know, I've noticed something staggering too. I watched that video of the seemingly, you know, un- invincible, you know, 19. There's a lot of these videos like that. I just... I did, that was the one I found. Um, you watch these videos of these seemingly invincible 19-year-old tarts, and, and I don't know if they know Jesus or not, right? I don't know, but they seem fearless in a stupid kind of way. And then I reflect on the power of God available for us to conquer way more than we could ever dream. And, and what do you see in Christian missions? Single women, like my friend Jessica Schwan, who for years lived in Kenya as a missionary working with street boys. How's her ministry? She worked with several other young, single Christian women. Or my friend, Stacy Lovett, who packed up everything and is in Tokyo, reaching out to Japanese there, or even right here, Karen, MC, Kristen, we're going to be interviewing Heather soon. Pretty soon, the women on our team are going to, out, they're going to outnumber the men. They're going to double. They're, They're going to double us. You know, they'll have gone out, these women have gone out and have made hundreds and hundreds of, how many phone calls have you made, Kristen? 2,000, thousands of phone calls. Putting 10,000 miles on your car to raise a support team so that she can lay down her life. Man, they're heroines. Absolutely. But I just, I I think about this and I go, where are the courageous men? Not that type of courage. But where are the courageous men besides Alec, who we know now is a member of this church? (laughs) But listen, it's true. It's the young women who give up the cushy second grade jobs in the suburbs to say, I want to work in the inner city. I don't know of any men who are saying that. They're not. I haven't heard it. I mean, I've been here for 12 years. I don't hear men going, I just want to make a difference in the world. Where are the men doing that? Men of Jesus, I just, I just said, don't use your courage to post YouTube videos. Do something great in your life. I mean, do something greater than that. Let God just do something. Rely on him. Listen, God made you strong. God gave you masculinity and you are strong. There is a strength to you. And when you sit back and you just let other people take responsibility, you abdicate it. You just say, you know, you, you look like a man, you've got this, you know, massive goatee and wear your hat cocked to the side. Like, Hey, don't take me seriously, but take me seriously. When you just let other people just live life and and just lead in relationships and matters of justice and in the church, society loses. Young men, you're strong. Use your strength for God. Do God-sized things in your life. Don't shrink back. Don't let someone else do it. Do something. I just say, join our team here. I believe in you. Young men, man. I believe in you. You can step up. You can be a man. We want to help. I might not have a beard like Jacob. Valera. I can never do that. <clears throat> but I know how to make young men become men. I know how to do that. Proverbs twenty twenty nine 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. It's the glory of youth. Young men and women live Overcoming lives by risking, risking it. That you would say, God did it through me. God did it through me. And so John speaks here to his people. He reminds them of the blessings in these parallel structures. The blessings of what it means to know Jesus. And your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. There's strength in you. Because the word of God abides in you, you know, Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. And then John uses this as a foundation for his exhortation to his friends. It's it's this these parallel structures to the children and the, the, and the fathers and the young men is which is the basis it's the basis for the blessings of fellowship that he exhorts them to stay with. God, stay in the Lord that, you know, God, you, you know, his intimacy, you know, his love and, and cherish that cherish him. Don't love the world. Don't love the world. Verse 15, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And last week we saw that John pointed out that the love command that he has for us is always focused on other people. Specifically the people of God. You know that the love that we have is meant to be poured out. It's focused on other individuals, not on ourselves. God calls us to live with in reconciliation with one another, reconciled lives with one another. It's a sign that we really know Jesus when things are going well in the family of God. But in verse 15, the focus of love shifts. It shifts from people to self. Instead of focusing on the well-being of another person, it just focuses on, on me, what I want my own pleasure, my own gratification. And really to understand what he's saying, you have to understand what the word world means here. Because some of you grew up in homes where anything outside the church was worldly. Just anything. So you never dressed up for Halloween because that's worldly. You called it Resurrection Day instead of Easter. You never, ever, ever died an egg before. You only listened to family-friendly Christian radio. You maybe would sneak a listen to Green Day or Kelly Clarkson, or Sync, but you weren't supposed to. You didn't watch movies unless it was VeggieTales or something with Kirk Cameron in it. But per- participating in culture, you, you, may, you may not get that, but come talk to me. You, participating in culture and being worldly are two very different things. Creating culture, people, listen, this is what we were meant to do. We were designed to do that from the very beginning. We were told to be fruitful and multiply and create and build and shape. And building culture, creating culture is a lot like being like God. God took nothing and he made something. And so if God made you fast, then run track and run as fast as you can. If God made you to sing, then sing opera on stage songs that honor God, but that aren't necessarily confined to family friendly radio at the very end of time. Listen, this is the picture of scripture that the people from all tongues, all tribes, all nations, all cultures will be gathered there before the throne of God. It will be this gigantic, enormous diversity in unity under Jesus. That's beautiful, but we need to be able to sort through what are in our culture what culture is and figure out what is meant to be redeemed and what is meant for the trash. Because that stuff that's meant for the trash, it belongs in the trash and the stuff that comes from the world. It's not from God. That's what he's saying. There's a huge difference between listen, Renaissance art where this master has beautifully portrayed the form of a woman and her beauty and all of her nakedness that is meant to hang in the world's finest museums. Hustler is meant for garbage, period. As Christians, we're supposed to redeem the beauty in our culture and in the world and reclaim it for Jesus, bring it back into relationship with Jesus. But but we never do that with the trash. It just should stay right where it is. You can take a prostitute or a stripper or a drug dealer And you can help them become so much more, but you never have Christian strippers. (laughs) Like that's not the goal or Christian drug dealers. There are things in our culture that we have to say that's not worth redeeming. It's not worth it. it. It's just worth. It's just meant to be in the trash. It can't be redeemed. It's not part of God's economy. It doesn't come from God. It won't last rather than make it better. It should be eliminated, period. And there's so much that in culture that needs to be brought back into relationship with Christ. And that's what God wants us to do in culture. And so John is saying here that if you love the world, if you love the things that don't come from God, that don't even originate from him, then you don't love God. The love of the father, he says, is not in him. It doesn't mean that, well, God doesn't love you. It just means rather that you don't want God. You don't want the things of God that you don't want the things that God wants. You don't, you don't love God. You want other stuff. And I don't know how many articles were written about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hundreds, maybe. Hundreds. But I read one of them. And my, my wife read one, too. Probably not the same one. And we, and we, we talked about it briefly. We just said, the, the only thing mentioned in those articles is how the film industry lost a great actor. It never mentioned the tragedy the three kids lost their dad. It was one sentence tagline in the article I read. Hoffman is survived by his partner and three children. I get it. I like the guy. Did you like him? Did you like his films? He's a good actor. But he OD'd on heroin. He, just, he threw his life away. He left his kids fatherless to get a fix. Why? That's the tragedy. Who in the industry is going to start saying that? Maybe there's articles out there, but who's saying, don't be like him. Don't give your life that way. Life is more valuable than a movie or, or an award. Don't do that. Make great films, but be a great man. Who's going to redeem Hollywood because TBN and Kirk Cameron aren't enough. John, John here is saying, to those who know Jesus, you know him. You know him, you have fellowship with him. Don't love the world. Redeem culture, but don't love the world. Don't, that's for garbage, that is trash. And then he goes on to describe the world as this trifecta of temptation. He's that will steal you from affection and love for God. He says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but from the world. And this is how the realm of evil works and how our heart is unnaturally bent because of sin. And we'll take each in turn, the desires of the flesh, the desire of of the eyes and the pride of life. And here what John is talking about is not just like pride in life, but, but actually it means the pride in possessions. I think the NIV gets it right. He's talking about, possessions because john will talk about this later on in his book so let's start with this worldly desires of the flesh first you have to know that in your walk with god temptation is not sin temptation isn't sin so so jesus was tempted in every way but was without sin and so um if you if you have this thought you know where you're like well i'm so close to clicking on this website and i really want to and i might as well because i've already blown it well that's a lie Because temptation isn't a sin. Another lie is that physical desires are bad. In fact, it's what these cessationists believe. These people that were leaving the church. They believe classic Gnosticism teaches here that uh, spirit is good, but flesh is evil. And so the desire for good food that we have isn't wrong. Do you like sleep? Scripture says God gives sleep to his beloved. That's why kissing someone is so good. You know, and sex is pleasurable. And God made our bodies to enjoy certain things. They are good within the boundaries that God created them. But if we love the world, then all of our decisions are just going to be about me. That means that we'll eat too many donuts. You know, the light is on a Krispy Kreme. It's like, I just want to, just want to pull in. The hot ones, you know, right off the line. They give you one even before you go there. You don't even have to pay for a donut. They'll just give you one. What? <laughs> this is... This is This is the, they don't do that anymore. Oh man, that's good. They're going to help me. You know, so when our, when our desires are just about ourselves, we, we, we drink too much sweet tea or bourbon, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever, we'll binge on whatever it is that we need, whatever the greatest fix is that'll give us the best buzz. And what's happened is that we end up twisting God's gifts. We twist them into being something that, that is just for us. And it's, we live from this carnal-based desires, not by faith or trusting in God. And we self-medicate. Many, So many people just pop pills because they're being controlled by the desires of the flesh. But God gives us his spirit. He gives us his spirit. And a part of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And we're studying the disciplines in home group, and I hope you practice once this year fasting. Fasting self-control is the ability to listen and, and to lean on God for what you need. The second way that the world sucks us in is by the lust of the eyes. Eve saw that the fruit was good and we see stuff all the time, don't we? I mean, are you a people watcher? Are you? Sometimes I watch people watch people. I watch my wife watch people all the time. Our eyes are a gateway. They're a gateway. We are visual people. If it's shiny, we pick it up. I mean, that's just what I do. If it's pretty, we want it. If it's new, we want it. How many guys have sprained a neck muscle just watching a pretty girl walk by? Oh, oh, not me, said the Christian. Oh, liar. You know, <laughs> you've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. You have to understand our, our eyes are a portal also to darkness. You know, to, to wanting and we, we want what we want, you know, stuff that's not ours. And it's not wrong to look good. Let me just say, it's not wrong to look good. Women, you don't have to wear frumpy clothes. You know, you don't have to go, well, I'm just going to look bad today. But there's (laughs) there's a huge difference between dressing to look good and dressing to look sexy. Huge difference. You know, dress to look good. Sex sells. We know that. We get it. It's the biggest buzz there is. I mean, that's maybe why God wants to protect it so much. And if you dress that way, then guys will look at you and and you'll get what you want. Young people, let your eyes look at what's lovely. Train your eyes to look at what's lovely. Lastly, there's the pride of possessions. Again, there's nothing wrong with owning stuff. But you have to understand that usually in America, more is not enough. When is enough enough? When I have more. And most of us, we have more than we need. But when our significance or our value or our worth comes from our stuff, the job we have, the kids, you know, the car we drive, uh, the trophy wife I have, my 2.3 kids, the latest tech thingy, then you're, you're swimming in what the world has to offer. You're just living there. And when someone drools over your nice boots or swoons, you know, over your vacation and you feel good about that, you got your reward. Pride is all about the false kingdom, the false community. You know, pride dominates there. It lives there, but not so with God's kingdom. Humility is the mark of God's kingdom. Let me ask you this. Are you making progress in your walk with God? Or are you living according to the world? There are two choices here. Two choices. Either you're making progress and you love God, or you're part of the world. Those are the only two choices that that we have. Don't be mistaken. It's not a both-hand thing. You can't have both and Perhaps what keeps you from change and hinders your growth is that you've just, you're have just you sucked into the world. You're trying to get traction with Jesus and make Jesus compatible with, with pride and the lust and possessions and things and stuff, but it won't work. Your hope and your trust and your significance is in other things, maybe relationships. And those things are honestly just more important than Jesus. It's focused on you and you're focused on self. And God is calling you. To turn from that. To turn from that and turn to what? Him. I mean, turn to him and, and cling to him and love him more than that stuff. Love him perhaps more than your bones. He's a good daddy. Do you know him? Do you know him that way? And John ends his exhortation on this note. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Think about that. This is good. If you trust Jesus, this is really good. One day, all the worldly stuff will be gone. No more jealousy, no more porn, no more slander, no more gossip, no more greed, no more war, no more strife, no more cancer, no more strip joints, no more lies, no more hurts, no more pain, no more Jersey Shore, no more rape, no more abuse. Gone. This cursed world, it's going to fall apart. It's going to implode. So don't attach your heart to it. Don't give your life for it. Don't live for it. Don't make the world and all the shiny stuff God. Don't dream about it. Don't make financial security and Disney vacations what you live for. It's just a house of cards. It's going to collapse. And you don't want to collapse with it. Hardly any, listen, I've said this before, but hardly anyone dying cries out and says, Oh my God. Stuff. No tropical vacations. Some will argue that God might condone a cry for Texas, right? (laughs) But we won't say, let me just hold my jewelry and my Versace. Quoting John Piper, friends, don't waste your life. John notes that the difference between the world and the kingdom of God is this. God's kingdom lasts forever. Forever, goodness, righteousness, beauty, relationship, intimacy, humility. The family of God is forever. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abiding forever means you'll be close to him forever. You'll be with him forever. There's another way of living. There's another way of thinking. There's another way of being. It's congruent to the kingdom. It lines up with scripture. It longs for realness. It dreams redemption. It does the work of redemption. That is our work, friends. Has God awakened you to it? I mean, do you know it? Listen, the will of God for you is very plainly is to know Christ. That's the only way that you can know the father. There is a way out of the mess that we created. It involves turning from self and turning to God. We don't need to live in the world when we can live as the church. You can live in the light. In the light. You can live reconciliation. You can know God through Christ. We can, you can read the scriptures for yourself and you can hear him talking to you. You can follow him. We can have abundant grace. We can have abundant mercy. It's available to you. It's not wishful thinking. I mean, it is real. I'm going to invite the band up. Why don't you stand with me and pray? Father, we just... Just tell you, Lord, that we want, I I want our young people to learn this now. God, not to attach themselves to the world. Yes, be the best teacher, be the best insurance adjuster, be the best actor. Redeem those areas in culture. Bring them back in line to relationship with you. But God, don't, don't let us attach our heart to the world. Lord, thank you for your kingdom, God. My prayer, my unending prayer is that all who are standing here would be present when you come in the fullness of your glory one day. Amen.